Morning, everybody. Everyone doing great? Feeling good? It's an honor to preach the word. It's always an honor to uh, preach the word. About 10 years ago, I was serving in a Hispanic church in Columbia, South Carolina. I loved it because I love the Spanish language. And I love that the service was completely in Spanish. I spent time studying in Mexico. Just love it. And so I was like, this is, this is home for me. And uh, one time they came up to me. They said, uh, we'd love for you to preach. And I said, I've never, I've never preached before. And I'd have to do it all in Spanish. So it'd take forever to write the sermon. But I was like, I'll, I'll go ahead and do it. And I did. And it went really well. And people came up to me afterwards. They were like, oh, that was great. And I was like, oh, okay, all right. And then they were like, you got to do it again. And I was like, okay. So I prepared a sermon and I delivered it and it was great. And I was like, this preaching thing, and I became a little puffed up. I was like, this preaching thing, like, this is like, man, I'm, I've done this twice. I've got this figured out, you know? Like, and they're like, you got to do this again. And I was like, okay, like, third time's a charm. My first two were charming. So this third one's going to be like out of the ballpark. Well, they didn't tell me this, but they invited some of the leaders of their denomination to that sermon that I was delivering. And I arrived, and it was the regular congregation, and there were just all these white people in the back. And none of them spoke Spanish, but they had nice big smiles, and I was like, it's cool to have you guys here. And uh, and so I was, I was getting ready to deliver the sermon. Now, I felt really good about the sermon because I wrote a very good sounding sermon. Like I wrote a sermon that sounded really good. Here's the problem. I wasn't living it out at all. And I got up front and I was like, this is like an all-star sermon. Like I figured out the formula. This is going to be awesome. And I start delivering it. And, you know, everyone's faces, all smiles. Everything's fine. It's going great. Everything's going smoothly. And then the Holy Spirit started moving in my heart. And when you're doing something really, like, when things are good and the Holy Spirit starts stirring, you're like, yes, this is great. When you know something's not right and he's stirring, I was like, something's about to go down and I have no idea. And a moment later, the best way I can describe it is God poured repentance over me. And I stopped the sermon And I repented and apologized and said I was sorry. I repented to the pastor. I repented to his wife. And it was the single most embarrassing, painful moment of my life. And what was really weird about it was everyone in the front was like, oh, my goodness, dear diary, the bearded man is a fraud. And then everyone in the back was smiling. They had no idea what was going on. They they have no idea that this guy up front is just doing the most humiliating thing. But in the moment, I was so broken. And I literally, I wanted to keep preaching. I literally couldn't. So I just kind of like wrapped it up and that was over. And then one of the guys from the back, he came up to me and he was like, I remember him talking like Thor, but I don't think he did. He was like, brother, it was a good sermon you preached. And I was like, no, it wasn't. And I should admit that to you, but I'm not going to. This is not a good day for me, but I'm just, I'm going to just walk away. Where's the exit? I say that to say, um, I learned the hard way that preaching 
is not a performance. It's not a show. It's not a speech. It's a matter of life and of death. It deals with the word of God and it deals with people's souls. And so I don't play around anymore. (laughs) I don't play around anymore. And what I'm going to be preaching on this morning is something that I have been seriously burdened by for probably seven or eight months. I don't know when it started, but it is a huge burden on my heart. And I think that there's hopefully going to be some relief for me. Because if you're burdened for something, you really feel the weight. It's really uncomfortable. I'm hoping that after I preach this sermon, I'm going to be like, okay. Um, But I don't know as if that's going to be the case. I think this is something that the Lord long-term has burdened my heart with. And what I want to invite y'all to do this morning, um, if you come to church regularly, you're used to sermons and you're used to what happens here. But what I want to encourage you with this morning, we're going to be looking at a very familiar passage, a very depressing passage. I want to ask that your heart really would be, as Christian mentioned, would be open and that you would hear my heart's cry. This sermon is called A Plea for Empathy. And I really am going to be begging you this morning. It's not going to be pretty. Um, I'm preaching Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be talking about the fall of man. This is not a sunshine and roses and Tootsie Rolls sermon. Um, but I want to just ask that you be open because there's some things here that I'm saying not for your sake, but for the sake of everyone around you, your whole sphere of influence. So this is really important to understand. Uh, so let's come together and ask for the Lord's blessing and his favor. Lord, I cannot preach this sermon without your help. And there are so many things that I could say. I've been thinking about empathy for months and months and months. But you know the exact words that need to be shared this morning. And so I surrender it to you. And I ask that this morning would be a morning of breakthrough. That this would be a morning where your voice is crisp, where if we need conviction, that your Holy Spirit would stab us really hard. I want it to hurt, Lord. If it needs to hurt, let it hurt. Because there's a dying world that can't afford for us to misunderstand this. So we pray. Right now, we're coming together. We ask you to speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Um. We're in Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to be looking at the first 19 verses. Here, I'll hold it like this. First 19 verses, I'm going to be reading out of the ESV version. The word of the Lord. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the tree, of, of the fruit of the tree, or, ooh, 
We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you may not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing in pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Wow, that's heavy. That's heavy. Very familiar story for the vast majority of us, I imagine. People in and out of the church know the story pretty well. The plot points were introduced In the first verse to this character, the serpent, we discover his identity later on in scripture clarifies that this serpent is none other than Satan himself. He has a dialogue with the woman. The woman decides, huh, this is interesting. Adam is with her. They both eat of the tree that God told them not to. And the moment they eat of it, they freak out. They start making clothes, loincloths. They're ashamed. They hear God walking through the garden in the cool of the day. And they're ashamed. The first moment of shame in human history. A big first for everything. This pivotal moment. And then God addresses all of them. He addresses first 
the serpent, right? Then he addresses the woman. Then he addresses the man. It's bad news. He's telling them what has just occurred. What are the implications of them openly rebelling to a God who gave them everything? It's devastating. The first point, there are a lot of directions someone could go with this passage. Um, I want to talk about the consequences of this. You'll notice the consequences for the woman and the man and, and for the serpent, for that matter, they are lasting. These are not a one-shot deal. Like he wasn't saying to Adam and Eve, things are messed up for you guys. But your child can come back in the garden. And you guys blew it. You're out. But he, he can come in and we'll try again. There was no trying again. It was broken. The fellowship, the perfection, it was broken. And it's lasting. The effects are absolutely lasting. Every tragedy we hear about in the news, every horrible, despicable thing that happens traces its roots back to this. And every human being you have ever interacted with, you've ever thought about, you've ever talked to, you've ever lived next to, you've ever worked with, every human being was struck by this passage. Genesis chapter 3. By the end of the sermon, you guys are all going to know exactly where to find this in your Bibles. I'm going to say Genesis chapter 3 a million times. I'm sure, because every Christian needs to know where everything went wrong before we rush into what made it right. Because we're surrounded by a world that lives in this brokenness, that lives in this devastation. What I want to point out also from this story, the lasting effects are important to understand. But I want you to look at what God did when they did this. See, he scolds the serpent first. And what's interesting is when he's scolding the serpent, he makes a promise to Satan. The promise is that you will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. But the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. He's saying there's going to come one someday from this woman who you're going to beat up really bad. But he's going to destroy you. Now, what blows me away about this is after they completely rebelled against God, his first reaction is empathy. He could have said, you guys are so messed up and I can see the future and you guys are going to do terrible things. I'm done with you all. I'm not going to rescue you. I'm not going to do anything about this. Bye. Get out of my garden. Fend for yourselves. I'm done. He could have done that. But he didn't. When he's scolding the serpent, he's like, I'm going to get you for this. He's frustrated because God had empathy. God was like, I love you human beings. I'm going to make a way. I don't like what you did, but I, I care about you. 
His first reaction is empathy. The two things we're getting from this passage, the consequences are lasting. But a moment after it happened, God still had a heart for Adam and Eve. And he still had a heart for you and for me. I'm going to define the word empathy. I've used it a good bit. Empathy is understanding and truly caring about someone or something. Understanding and truly caring about someone or something. It's a form of compassion. It is a deep affection where you are willing to truly understand what's going on and still care. You have to have both to have empathy. It's a very powerful concept. Very powerful. So powerful, you don't really find it in the world. The world will have empathy for their own, but they won't have, they won't have true empathy. True empathy is when you're willing to understand and care about people different than you. That's true empathy. It's not empathy if it's somebody just like you. That's what empathy is. Understanding and caring. And that's what God had. Instantly. I understand what you guys just did right now. You might not understand what just happened. You messed up all of humanity. Congratulations. That's what just happened. I understand what happened. But I still care about you. And I'm still coming for you. Powerful. So, the ultimate form of empathy, the epitome of empathy, is what God promised, which is Jesus. When Jesus came, he was the epitome of empathy. He was the living embodiment of it. There were people that society was casting out, that society was like, they're sinners, they're disgusting, they're horrible. And when Jesus saw them, he couldn't stop seeing Genesis 3. He saw people born into a condition that is disgusting and horrible, and his heart was to rescue them. And the people of that day were horrified. They were like, Jesus, why are you around this person? Everyone else looking at the scripture hates those people. Why do you love them? Why do you care about them? Why does your heart break for the people in society that are the most cast out? Why do you actually care about people? Why do you give a rip? We ignore them. Why don't you? And he refused. And that drove them nuts. So nuts that they wanted to kill him. And just before he had that triumphant entry into Jerusalem, he sees Jerusalem and he has a broken heart for the city that's about to murder him. And he weeps. He's crying for these human beings that are going to kill him. He had empathy. He understood. Genesis 3 struck all of them. Nobody has a sign-up sheet when they're in the womb that says, do you want to be fallen or perfect? No, it struck everybody. It struck you too. Everyone in that city. And his heart could have, could have been so angry at them. It wasn't. He wept over them. Jesus, why do you care? Why do you have understanding and caring for people who want to destroy you? That's his heart. That's how he lived. That was his ministry. And this is the real kicker. He's on the cross. The cross was the most vicious, violent way to die. The way people would actually die on it, we kind of are familiar with the concept where you have your arms out and your feet are nailed. You would, the way you would hang, 
you would actually suffocate because in order to lift your body up to get air, you would have to push on the very nails that are in your feet and in your hands. And so there was excruciating pain every time you took a breath. This is how he spent one of his last breaths. He looked at the people around him that were mocking him and murdering him. And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What? They're killing you. They're, they're casting lots for your clothes. You did all these miracles and were such a blessing to them. And they hate you. They are literally killing you. The guy next to you is going to literally stab you in a few moments just to make sure you're dead. And his heart broke for them. And he said, Father, forgive them. Why would he ask for this forgiveness? Because he knows what happened in Genesis chapter 3. God's not surprised when he sees people acting badly. People are going to act badly. Why? Because everything's broken. It just happens. He knew they were going to be horrible to him. But he understood. And he still cared. This is empathy. Jesus lived a life of amazing empathy. So (laughs) here's what I'm just throwing out there. Let me get some water. Jesus right now is sitting at the right hand of the majesty of God, Scripture says. Physically, Jesus is a physical person. He was 100% a man and 100% God. He is sitting at the right hand of the majesty of God. He, is, he has entrusted us to be his body. The church is called the body of Christ. So whenever the church does anything here on earth, we're representing Jesus. Elsewhere, the scriptures call us ambassadors of Christ. We are representatives. We're supposed to show the world Jesus Christ. But this is, this is what really has been hurting me for seven to eight months, and it's been driving me crazy. You ask anyone, pretty much, outside of the church, how empathetic and caring Christians are, and you better be sitting down. When I look at what our role is, if we do any ministry without empathy, we are bad ambassadors. We are representing someone very different from Jesus. If everything Jesus did was out of a heart of understanding and caring, if we tried to do anything outside of that, We are out of bounds. We have broken the rules. We are representing someone who is not Jesus. Usually we're representing ourselves. Now this is what's difficult. We are living in the darkest days the world has ever known. That's my belief. It doesn't say that in scripture. 2018 is when it's really bad. Okay, I'm just saying, look around you, things are rough. Can we all agree on that? Things are really, 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 really rough. And there are sins and there are things 
that we get offended by. And that's not bad. Sin is offensive. It's repulsive. It hurts people. It destroys lives. It's okay to be frustrated. My neighbor, his lifestyle is so offensive to me. This person, when they do this, it makes me so angry. That's fine. Because it's offensive. But Jesus, in all of his perfection, how offended was he at sin? And yet he had perfect empathy. And what's so easy to do is to push Genesis chapter 3 at the back of our minds and to expect the world to get their act together. Oh, if that person would just change, I'd invite him to church. Well, don't you bring them to Jesus and Jesus fixes them? That's what the Bible says, right? Am I crazy? Or, oh, this person is just such a knucklehead. If they would just get their act together. They're not going to get their act together. Genesis chapter 3. Read the chapter. They're not going to get their act together. They need Jesus. People don't need behavior modification. They need the Savior of the world. You're not going to change them. And you shouldn't. You'll ruin it. You love them. You understand and say, yeah, now don't tell them this, okay? <laughs> we got to be wise about this. But you've got to understand this person is broken through and through. We don't fight against people. You don't get in arguments with your neighbor. I don't think you've been struggling with this sin your whole life. Who cares how long he's been struggling with it? He's broken. Give him Jesus and Jesus will change him. When did the gospel change into this Behavior modification system when people have to worry about all these rules when the invitation of Christ is that you are broken, come to me, all who are weary, I will give you rest. Not Daniel. I don't give people rest. If there's somebody who has a sin that's offensive to me, I share Jesus with them. Say, Daniel, you're overexcited. I am because the church has been blowing it. You ask anybody on the outside. People don't think Christians are caring. They think all we care about are rules. You ask people who are struggling with sexual sin. You ask them, how caring is church? Do you you like walking into churches? Do you like getting people's reactions? Oh my goodness, of course not. But we're the only people in the world that know what happened. Stand up at any college campus And say, everything's messed up. And every person will agree with you. Unbeknownst to them, they just agreed with Genesis chapter 3. They all just agreed with scripture. Now we know why. The world might mock the reason why. Oh, that's not real. It happened. And it messed you up. And it messed me up. And who am I? To not have empathy for my fellow man when my creator had empathy on me. I'm begging you to have empathy because, as I said earlier, this is a a matter of life and death for people. And some people, they don't share the gospel with their neighbors because they think their neighbors are too lost. That's like not allowing someone into an all-you-can-eat buffet because they're hungry. Can't go into CC's. He's hungry. No, it's made for that. (laughs) It's made for that. He needs CC's. He's hungry. (laughs) Y'all, 
(laughs) We can't forget what happened in Genesis 3 because it struck all of us. Um, I want to just share something. (laughs) It's been kind of depressing. Let's go deeper, okay, real quick. Um, To just make this real, um, the Pew Research Council, which monitors a tremendous amount of data, some people say they're biased. They probably are biased, but there's a lot of stats to back up what they say, so I think they're fairly credible when they say this. They say the United States of America is undergoing a massive shift in religious affiliations. Right now, they said we're literally in the midst of it, so we're not done yet. The church is losing people in America like crazy. You might have heard me talk about this before and. And so I'm just going to be really repetitive in this moment. Forgive me. Um, everyone always talks about millennials are leaving the church. Millennials are leaving the church. I was at an amazing conference at the Cove Camp last November, and it was primarily an elder crowd. And the person declared, and it's true, there's stats to back it up. Elders are leaving senior folk who we respect to the uttermost. I don't use the word, the O word. Um, seniors that we just respect, we love, they are leaving the church like crazy. Stats to back it up. Really, the only group that hasn't been leaving the church in droves are baby boomers. So good job, baby boomers. Um, everybody else, I mean, they're, they're leaving too, but just not as fast. Two weeks ago, there was an article in the State Magazine, a leading magazine in South Carolina. The article was called Losing Faith. There are tens of thousands of people that come to South Carolina every year. The number of Christians has been going down. Record numbers of churches closing. I care about that because Samantha and I and some people here are planting a church an hour south of here in South Carolina. The stats in the place we're planting that church are so bad, and this is not a joke, we literally had to specify on our church plant website where the stat came from because it's so ugly people thought we made it up. That's bad. It's bad when people are like, I know you're planting a church. Did you fudge that statistic? Nope. U.S. Census data. That's from the census, baby. Not made up. That's truth. People are leaving the church. Oh, let's, let's think of an explanation. I'm going to throw one out there that I've been burdened with for eight months. I think Christians are scared of the ground we're losing in this country. And I think we have an attitude where we want to fight about it. And Jesus gave the only way to do it. You don't fight flesh and blood, the scriptures say. You don't fight people that are already sick and need him. You don't fight them. It's disgusting to fight them. They're broken just like you. You don't fight them. You love them. They're so broken. Of course they are. You love them. Serious business. Because they're leaving Say, Daniel, you were too heavy. I was, but I'm going to be honest. My time here is short, and I appreciated Heath inviting me to speak. If we don't get a handle of this, we are going to lose so much ground, and I think there's going to be a day we look back and we are like, oh, wow, we stopped being like Jesus. And I want that to stop now. And if there's one message I could literally broadcast to all of Christendom in the South and across the United States, I would say, read Genesis chapter 3, and instead of hurting people and bullying people and expecting them to change, do what the Bible says and give them Jesus instead. 
That's called empathy. And that's the one message I will have. And that's what this was just been. Holy cow. I didn't even have caffeine, y'all. Um, didn't have caffeine. Um, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to pray real quick. Um, and I'd, I'd like for the worship team to just stay in their seats just for a little bit because literally everybody needs this. I want you to think of one person. Actually, the Lord might bring many people to mind. I want you to think of one person in your life that they drive you crazy. That they're offensive. Or there's somebody that you think of and you're like, I don't think that person is really cut out to be a Christian. Or I don't think that person will ever repent. Or I don't think that person will ever change their lifestyle. I want you to think of that person right now. I'm thinking of someone right now. And maybe it's just somebody that plum drives you nuts. That's what mine is. I'm going to be honest with you. It's not like there's some overarching, like, Sin is in this person's life. They just plumb drive me crazy. But I need to have empathy. So think of that person. Lord, we, we pray right now. These people you're bringing to mind. Right now in the name of Jesus. I pray for a biblical perspective on that person. I pray we would not expect that person to change outside of your will and your power. But that we would offer them Jesus. That we would be willing to listen and talk and love so that they would see the real Jesus. Not some fake Jesus that expects them to change before they even come to him. Lord, we pray right now for this person. We pray for conversations. I pray that there would be opportunities to speak to that person, to love that person. I pray that through our empathy and love that walls would be broken down. And that they would see that the person of Jesus Christ truly is real and as they encounter you you can change them you can heal them so we pray right now for every person we're thinking of no one is outside of the realm of possibility of becoming a child of god and trusting in jesus christ as their lord and savior may we have optimism and may we have love as we minister and care and have empathy for this person i pray god so tough especially if we have no empathy for them but you can give it to us in the name of jesus we pray in the name of jesus thank you lord we don't want to forget what happened in genesis chapter 3 lord please give us empathy i'm pleading with you lord this is my plea this morning that you would give us empathy For our fellow mankind. That we would truly love and care. In Jesus name. Amen.